0: Our scripture lesson tonight uh, is really the gospel within the gospel. Uh, one of my favorite scriptures of all time. And so we're going to share just a little bit of the beginning of the story and then as Paul Harvey says, uh, that'll be the rest of the story. All right? So let's share in God's good word together. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and religion scholars were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. Their grumbling triggered this story. Suppose one of you had a hundred sheep and lost one. Wouldn't you leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the lost one until you found it? And when found, you can be sure you would put it across your shoulders, rejoicing, and when you got home, call in your friends and neighbors saying, Celebrate with me, I found my lost sheep. Count on it, there's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in need of no rescue. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. How do you see God? How do you see God? If you have your sermon notes, I invite you to uh, take them out. It's a really important question. It might be the most important question that you can answer. How do you see God? We're following along um, and enjoying the book, Love Does. I hope you're reading it with me. It's a great little book. Uh, The sermons don't follow the book, but uh, it's inspired by this. And so one of the quotes in the book is this by Bob Goff. He says, I used to think God was good some of the time, but now I know he's good, what? All the time. And so maybe in church you've heard this before. The pastor says God is good and the people say all the time. And then the pastor says all the time and the people say God is good. Um, And so let's try that one time. God is good. And all the time. All the time. And God is good. You may have heard this. I grew up saying this in church as a preacher's kid. Uh, but then I went on vacation when, with my mother and uh, my sister and her kids. And we were all down at the beach. We were at this tiny little Methodist church uh, at the beach. And, and this funny little pastor showed up. I think he was retired. And he said, God is good. And the people said, there you go. And then, and then he said, all the time. And then he said this. I'd never heard this before. He said this, and he ain't mad at you. I thought that's kind of weird. Uh, But it's true. He ain't mad at you. So let's try all of it together. God is good all the time. And all the time, God's good. And he ain't mad at you. That's right. He's not mad at you. He's for you. He loves you. God is thrilled that for all of his children, it's really important that you understand that God's not out to get you, right? How do you see God? God is not this judge that is just watching your every move, you know, waiting to see if, if you do something wrong, you know, if you speed through a school zone or, or, you know, if you think that's who God is in your life, then you've got a pretty miserable life. Even if God is a just judge, which God is perfectly just, um, there's some good pieces about having a judge that's just. But if you always think of God as only as judge, um, you know, it's kind of kind of creepy. Uh, other people uh, see God as, as, as much more unpredictable, really more like a one-armed bandit, you know, kind of like this gambling machine. Um, you, know, you say a prayer, and uh, you, you, know, you put in your tithe, and you pull the thing, and you go, yay, I got a new job. You know, God did great. You know? I put in a little money, and I got something good. And then you pull it again, and you're like, you know what, I hate that job now. Why did God do that to me? That's a bad job. You pull it again, you go, yay, I found the love of my life. You pull it again, and then something bad happens. And some people think of God like this, real capricious, real unpredictable. Uh, and if that's what you think of God, again, you have a miserable life. Because you're always waiting for the other shoe to drop. God does something good for you, yay, but then you're like, oh, what's next? What, who? And you just live in sort of this odd anxiety, uh, neurotic life. But then, you know, what Jesus says God is like, is he's, he uses the word Abba, which is the most intimate word you could use for father, the relationship between a father and a father and a son, Abba, Daddy. It's a closeness where, where God as a Father can take you places you could never go on your own. A loving Father, a good, good Father with His arms mighty big and wide. It makes a big difference how you see God. Uh, and that's, that's true for all of us. Uh, Last week the question was will you repent? That was really the question last week Uh, Jesus in the gospels was asking you will you repent? He tells you three stories in a row And we know that when jesus tells three stories in a row you're supposed to pay attention Really close attention. So jesus saying "Repent, repent 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 turn your life towards me turn your life towards god this week we come to this scripture, and for most of my life, I thought that this week's scripture was about repent. Will you repent? It, the story of the prodigal son. Maybe you learned uh, these stories this way that it all led up to whether the the, the young son would repent or not. I'm going to share with you tonight. I don't think that's what the story is about at all. I really don't. Uh, first of all, we know it's not because it's not the end of the story. There's more to the story than that. This week's question is really, will you rejoice? That's your blank there. Will you rejoice? Will you celebrate? The homecoming of the sheep, the coin, and the son. That's the question. It's not will you repent, it's will you rejoice? Will you, re- will you rejoice? Do you understand who God is? Do you see God as vengeful and harsh and judging and ready to make the other shoe drop, or do you see God as loving? And, and we, don't, we don't, you know say those things out loud, but we all have these ideas in our minds about God. I love the little story about the Christian school where all the little first graders, they were all lined up for lunch, and at the front of the line was a big bowl of beautiful red shiny apples. And, And right on top of the apples was this little printed note from one of the teachers that read this in big letters. Apples, take only one. God is watching. Now further down the table were vegetables, And milk, and at the very end of the table was a plate of fresh, homemade cookies right out of the oven. And on the plate of cookies, there was this little hand-scribbled note that read, good cookies, take all you want, God's watching the apples. (laughs) I mean, you can think of God like that. I don't think that's how it works, but that's how the little one thought it works. You see, God is good. How often? All All the time and all the time. God is good. You can have apples and the cookies and all the things in between. Just have to share. Just have to share. Uh, Another little one uh, said uh, at her school to her teacher, she said, You know, um, this thing about God never sleeping and always having his watchful eye on me, it's creeping me out. I don't like it. Like God's a stalker. He's going to catch me doing something wrong. And the teacher responded, Oh, honey, it's not like that. God is your biggest fan. He loves you so much, he simply can't take his eyes off you. And see, that's a different way of seeing God as a good, good father. One that loves you right where you are. And, and in our best moments, we, we know that, we understand that, we remember that. But at other times, um, we're not so sure. In our, in our more honest moments, um, we think God isn't good. Uh, we go through incredible grief or incredible pain. Um, and, well, let me just ask you the question. Have you, have you ever felt that God was too good to others and not good enough to you? And you look at your life and the things you do, you're a pretty good person. I mean, you're here at church on Friday night for Pete's sake. You've got to get some bonus points for that, right? And then you look at other people's lives, and they're a little sketchy. Um, but it doesn't seem like anything bad ever happens to them. And, and so there's this thought in every mortal from time to time, that maybe you're not getting a fair shake. And it's been that way for a long time. If you go all the way back to the Old Testament, Exodus 16 and 18, uh, the people who God had just saved from Egypt already felt this way. Uh, Moses says this. He says, When the Lord gives you meat to eat, which he had done, in the evening, and your fill of bread in the morning, which he had done, because the Lord has heard the complaining... That you utter against him. The people were complaining. God had just saved them. They had been slaves for 400 years. They get out into the wilderness uh, to, for their salvation so that they could be free. And they're already complaining. And then Moses says this. Look, your complaining is not against us, but against the Lord. It's against the Lord. Now, you might say, well, that's a weird you know, thing to tell us all the way back in Exodus. Well, the reason I'm telling you that is because the word complain here is the same word Jesus uses when he talks about the Pharisees. Look at the story again in Luke 15. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. This is a good thing, friends. They were interested in the things of God. But the Pharisees, right, the the muckety-mucks of the religious scholars, they were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled, he takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. They're grumbling, they're complaining. The same word um, as used all the way back in the Old Testament triggered this story. You see, religious people, when we think about God, if we're not careful, he can absolutely be saving us, helping us, feeding us, clothing us, and we still complain. We still grumble. Even though God has done everything God said he was going to do, we just, you know, we're not having it. We don't like it. See, the religious leaders of Jesus' day looked forward not to the saving of the sinner, but the destruction of the sinner. This idea that God somehow cared about the least, the last, and the lost was well beyond them. When they thought about all the pantheon of gods, and if you go to Greece today, you can even see some of the ruins of those temples, the gods didn't care about humanity. Uh, God simply did what they wanted to do, and humans had to deal with it. And Jesus says, no, 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 that's not the way God is at all. God loves you. He's Abba. He's Daddy. He's Father. He's a good, good Father. And see, Jesus... Then had to answer these hard-hearted Pharisees, these religious scholars that thought they knew who was in and who was out. And Jesus says, no, you don't, you don't understand at all. And so he tells them um, these stories. Now, before I tell you Jesus' answer, I want you to hear sort of the purveying thought of the day. There's a, there's a Jewish story um, that reminds us that God has been merciful not only to us but to others also. And that's supposed to bring us joy, not grief. We're supposed to be happy about that. When God is good to us, we should be happy about it. When God is good to others, we are to be happy about it. But if we're honest, that's not always the case. Because comparison is the killer of our souls. We look around and we're not sure that God's been so good to us because our neighbor has more. So the Jewish story goes like this. It was a well-known story in Jesus' day. And that is of a, of a good, hard-working farmer. God actually appears. The Lord appears to the farmer and he grants him three wishes as these stories go. But the condition was, whatever the Lord did for the farmer, double would be given to his neighbor out of God's generosity. And so the farmer, scarcely believing his good fortune, first of all, wish number one, he wished for a hundred cattle. And immediately he received a hundred cattle. And he was overjoyed until he saw that his neighbor had, how much? Two hundred cattle. So for his second wish, he wished for a hundred acres of land. I mean, that's a lot of land. And again, he was filled with joy until he saw that his neighbor had 200 acres of land. And rather than celebrating God's goodness, the farmer could not escape feeling jealous and slighted because his neighbor had received more than he. So do you know what his third wish was? His third wish was that God would strike him blind in one eye. And God wept. At his hard heart. That he could have anything he wanted. All three wishes. But he simply couldn't get his eyes off his neighbor. To receive the joy of the Lord that was his all along. That's a painful story. I hate that story. Because of the truth that it shares in all of our lives. So Jesus responds to this sort of darkness in us. With three stories of his own. Back to back to back so that we pay attention. And the first is about sheep. Sheep. Silly, silly sheep. So he says this, which one of you, and he's talking to these people, which one of you having a hundred sheep and losing one of them does not leave the 99 in the wilderness and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? It's a real question that he's asking. He says, and when he's found it, he lays it on his shoulders and does what? Rejoices. Okay. And when he comes home, he calls together his friends and neighbors saying to them, what? Rejoice with me. For I found my sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. Now, those of you who know sheep know they're not that smart. I mean, they look like this. Isn't he cute? Oh, he's a sweetie, right? And the thing is that Jesus is actually poking the Pharisees. They're grumbling about who Jesus is and, 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 and their hard-heartedness. And, and they're mad that he's actually talking to tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus tells this story. Now, he knows that they would actually know the Old Testament forwards and backwards. And so um, this uh, quote from Isaiah would be uh, well in their minds. Uh, Jesus, talking about God, uh, says, He will feed his flock like a shepherd. Right? if they, they would know the scripture, he will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. This is what Isaiah, this is how the prophet Isaiah de- describes God as a shepherd, as a wonderful, loving shepherd. This is who God is. Um, but also in Isaiah 53, 6, uh, all we like sheep have gone astray. How many of us? All. We have, how many of us? All turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all that's pretty inclusive right all of us all of us have fallen short and jesus says god looks for each of us for each and every one of us now i would remind you that this teaching is a double scandal to the pharisees because one jesus reminds them of a god who's described as something that they had despised Because the Old Testament talks about God as a loving shepherd. But in Jesus' day, by the time it got to Jesus' day, the rabbis had had told people to stay away from shepherds because they were dirty. They were stinky. They were smelly. They were the same as camel drivers or sailors or gamblers or tax collectors. The shepherds were the lowest of the low. They were people to be shunned. And Jesus says, don't forget who I am. That I have come to save and seek the lost god is a good good father god is a good good shepherd and he loves all of his sheep so in luke nineteen ten, jesus says this of himself for the son of man that's a title he uses for himself he says i came to seek out and to save the what the lost that which is lost that talks about the heart of god now many of the flocks were communal flocks in jesus day So in Jesus' day, the community knew well that there was not a shepherd out in the field whose daily job was not hard and risking his very life for the sheep. And the shepherd was personally responsible for the sheep. It was tough terrain, wild and hungry animals ready to kill the sheep or the shepherd. Uh, And this this was the rule in Jesus' day. You either came home with that communal flock with every single sheep, and if you couldn't, you at least had to bring the fleece. And so if you lost a sheep, you may not be able to bring them back alive, but you at least had to bring in the fleece so that the community knew that you weren't stealing from the community. This is who God is, faithful to every sheep. Every sheep matters to God. Every one of us is valuable to God. And Jesus says of himself, I have come to seek and to save the lost. So that's story number one. That's a pretty good story. Everybody knew that sheep were valuable. They were dumb, but they were valuable. They they could get lost easily. Um, but they were of value, and everybody, everybody got that. So then, uh, Jesus tells a second story uh, about coins. Now, this is hard because we don't really deal with this in the same way. That's a drachma, uh, and, and drachmas would look somewhat like this. And, and if you were a lady, you would have this, and you would put it around your head like that. And each one of these little coins... I know I look good, don't I? One, each one of these coins is a day's wage, a denarius or drachma. And so, if you were wearing one of these, um, this would be about 10 days' wages. Okay, I'm going to give this back to Chantel so I don't clink when I walk. Um, But this lady, in the story, one of those little coins falls off. And she loses it. Now, when I used to hear this preached, and and I've even preached it this way, some scholars tell you that it's worth a whole lot of money because if you're a woman, you know, a day's wage is nothing to you know, to sneeze at uh, or scoff at. But 10 days wages is not that much money, friends. It's not. And this is where it gets interesting. Because if the story is only about repentance, then the stories have to grow and grow and grow in importance. But it's not about repentance, not only. It's about whether or not you're going to rejoice at the things God rejoices at, like the sheep. And everybody got that. What they didn't get was that a woman would actually search her home until she found something that wasn't that expensive. Just a day's wage. Maybe $10. Maybe $20. At most. And look what God does. Jesus tells the second story so that we don't miss it. What woman having ten silver coins, if she loses one of them, does not light a lamp, sweep the house, search carefully until she finds it? When she's found it, she calls together her friends and neighbors saying what? Here it is again. Rejoice. Rejoice with me, celebrate with me, for I have found the coin that I had lost, just so I tell you there's joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Does that sound familiar? It should, because Jesus has already said that in the first story. So if it's a sheep that everybody gets and everybody understands that it's super important and you have to do this stuff by law, great. Or if it's just a coin, God searches for you the same. He loves you the same, whether the community values you as a, as a very high thing or whether it's just you know your everyday, God is searching for you because he wants to be in relationship with you. And so the house that this lady lived in would have looked something like this. It would have been very dark. Um, this has been opened up so you can see it. But these houses would be one room, dirt floor, no windows, and a small opening. It would be very hard to find that coin uh, in that house. And so she has to turn on the lights. You know, she has to light the lamp. She has to sweep the house. And she's looking for it because it's important to her. Important to her. Now, when uh, Charles Spurgeon, uh, known as the Prince of Preachers, uh, would preach this text, he would say that there are three kinds of sinners. Uh, and, and it's okay to preach it that way. I've preached it that way myself. Um, but, but here's the thing. Uh, so he says that sheep sinners are just, you know, silly. They just get themselves in trouble. But the second kind of sinner uh, are people who just, they start running with the wrong crowd. Um, and they, they, you know, they just get kind of careless. And next thing you know, you're, you're in harm's way. Uh, if you're a parent, you understand this. There are certain kids that when your, your children go out with them, uh, they're going to come home late and they're probably going to be in trouble. Uh, there are other kids that when your kids go out, they come back early uh, or they hang out at your house and it's never a problem. There's just certain people that just kind of run like that. And and this was sort of the the point Spurgeon was making with the coins. Uh, When I was little, uh, and mom and dad lived in a tiny little parsonage, about 500 square feet, Uh, I was little, little, uh, like three, four, five, six. Uh, And my sister um, is two years older than I am, 26 uh, months older. We lived in this tiny little house. We lived in the same um, uh, room. And you can tell, I'm a good dancer today. and, And everything I learned, I learned from her. See, I mean, I've got some moves there. I mean, it was, this is me. Uh, you know, three, four. And my sister could talk me into almost anything in that tiny little house. We, we lived um, in this tiny parsonage with one room for Deb and I. Mom and Dad lived across the hall in this tiny little bathroom. And um, so, you know, there we are. She got the top bunk. Uh, I could never get my head through there. And um, they basically caged me in the bottom bunk so that I wouldn't fall out uh, or cause problems. I mean, look at that. That's horrible. I'm in a cage uh, in a small, small room. So, I don't know about you, but, but I can remember there were those nights um, that, you know that night when you're putting your kids to bed, not because the kids are tired, but because you have to put them to bed. Like, you can't take another moment. So, they're going to bed. It might be 6.30 in the summer, but they're going to bed because <laughs> they are. Well, I think it was one of those nights, uh, Deb and I went into our room because mom had, had enough. She, you know, she put us in the tub and, you know, got us all washed up. Clearly, we're going to bed. And my sister had this way about her where she didn't really ever get in trouble, but somehow I did. Because she would lay in the top bunk and she would say things like, I'm kind of thirsty. Aren't you thirsty? Can't, I, yeah, I just, I don't know, I can make it all night without a drink. You better go get a drink and, and bring me one too. So I do. I'm like, oh, that sounds great. I mean, Deb knows, you know, I got to go get a drink. I'm so I'm thirsty right now just thinking about it. And so I go and... And I get out of my room, and my mom says, John Mark, what are you doing out of bed? I'm like, I'm thirsty. I can't make it to the morning. And she goes, get back in bed. But I'm thirsty. Oh, oh okay. Mm-mm. Then that's it. Then, you know, to bed. And, and I need some for death. Okay, okay, we'll go, we'll go to bed. I do that. She has her drink. I have my drink. Silence. I'm about to go to sleep. And I hear my sister say, you know, we better go to the bathroom having drunk this water. You go first. I'll wait for you. And then, you know, and then I'll go. You know, you, but you don't, I mean, you don't want to wet the bed. You, you know, we better go. I'm like, yeah, she's right. You better go. You don't want that to happen. So I get up. I'm out of the door again. Oh, my mama's had it. Right? She's like, what are you doing out of bed? I told you to get it back. You're not, I got to go to the bathroom. Oh my gosh, I thought she was going to kill me. Get in there, you know, just at the wit's end. I do, I'm coming. And, she, and then she she stands at the door, in the in the door, you know, with the light coming through, and she says, listen, you two, I've had enough. I'll put you to bed early, because I need you to go to bed early. you have got church in the morning. You listen, you've had your drink, you've gone to the bathroom. If I hear one more peep out of you, you're going to have it. Spankings! Close the door. Now my sister, who's not yet been out of bed, lays on the top bunk and goes, Beep! Oh, it was on. That door flew open. The 12-headed dragon of the apocalypse came in, whipped me out of bed, beat me all over town, and back with the inch of my life. Now, I love that story. Now... My sister didn't get touched, and it was she. I, I don't think my mom still believes that it wasn't me that said peep. It wasn't. There will be a day of justice for me, reckoning one day. But but Spurgeon would say, you understand this that, that there are sheep folks that just they're just silly and they get in trouble. But there are others of we get in trouble not necessarily through fault of our own. It's just kind of who we're running with. My sister, who's awesome by the way, now. Um, but, but you get the point. And then he says, but then, but then Jesus really takes it a whole new place. But notice this still. Jesus says there's going to be more what? Joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons that need no repentance. And what's new is this thought is that God would search for a sinner, for a sheep sinner, for a coin sinner. People didn't believe that. People didn't think that God was a good, a good father. They thought he was vengeful and harsh and, and made crazy stuff happen. They thought that, you know, you came in and got beat within an inch of your life because your sister said peep. You know, it wasn't fair, it wasn't just. And so Jesus then goes to the story, not of the prodigal son. That's, a mis, that's misnamed. There's two sons in the story. And friends, I will tell you, both are lost as a goose. Not one more than the other. They're both lost. And the climax of the story is not with the first younger one. It's with the older one. And we'll get there in just a moment. See, Jesus goes now to something that's precious to all of us, and that's our children. And the father is searching for both sons, both sons. I I need you to see this in the story. And so the the first story goes like this. You know this one. This is is very well known, perhaps. Uh, Of the foolish son, the younger foolish boy. Uh, Jesus says this. He goes, there was once a man who had two sons. The younger said to his father, father, I want right now what's coming to me. Now, it's really impossible for me to show you how offensive that would be. In essence, the, the young boy is saying, look, I know that I'm supposed to get my inheritance when you die, uh, but yours are dead to me. I mean, you might as well just be dead. So go ahead and give it to me now. And this, this, is what's, this is what's crazy about the story. The father does. He divides the property between the two boys. And it wasn't long before the younger son packed his bags. He li- leaves for a diff- distant country. And they're undisciplined and dissipated, drunk, basically. He wasted everything he had on women and booze. Uh, basically going to Vegas. I mean, that's it. It It couldn't be worse. And so after he'd gone through all his money, there was a bad famine all through the country, and he began to hurt, hurt badly. And he signed on with a citizen there who assigned him to his field to slop the pigs. Now, you would understand that in the Jewish community, you didn't associate with people who weren't Jewish, first of all. And second of all, you could never even eat pork, much less work with pork or be with one. Never, ever. This was the worst of the worst. But he was so hungry that we, he would have gladly eaten the corn cobs and the pig slop, but no one would give him any. This is supposed to be really clear that this kid could not be in a worse spot. If you're a Jewish kid, this is the worst as it gets. So that brings him to his senses. And he says this. Now, this is important. Because as the reader of the story or the hear of the story, you get to see this boy's internal dialogue. So you actually get to see his heart. You get to see what's really going on with him. So the boy says to himself, all those farmhands working on my father, they get to sit down to three meals a day, and here I am starving to death. I'm going to go back to my father, and I'll say to him, Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son. Take me on as a hired hand. So he gets up, and he goes home right to his father. And and this is what I think is is perhaps the most beautiful uh, words in all the scripture. When he was still a long way off. You see, you see, Can you see the father waiting at the fence line, looking into the sunset, looking for just that silhouette? Is that my boy? Could that be him? Is he finally coming home? I've been so worried about him. And with his heart pounding, he runs to him, he embraces him, and he kisses him. And that kiss, before they say a word, lets the boy know and everybody else know that he's completely 100% forgiven. Like that, without a word spoken. And then, of course, then the son starts his speech. And listen to the first word that he says. What is it? father. All that had been broken, all the things that he had done, he's coming back, claiming his heritage, claiming his repentance. Father, I've sinned against God. I've sinned before you. I don't deserve to be called your son ever again, ever again. And of course, the dad's not hearing it. He's just so thrilled to get to see his son again. And if any of you have ever lost a child, you know what that dad's going through. When Noah was tiny, two, three years of age, He was and still is lightning quick. Lightning quick. Uh, This was the 4th of July where he ran all the way around the neighborhood numbers of times. Um, Just a sweet, sweet, fast kid. John Mark talked. He was silent and ran places. I remember getting a phone call from Chantel um, out of the blue to me. I've never heard her like that before or since. She was in Walmart. And Noah had disappeared. And She looked uh, by the cart where she was shopping, and he was gone. She looked in the clothes where he had been playing, and he was gone. She looked down the aisle uh, where he might have gone, and he was gone. She looked the other way, and he was gone. She was with a friend, and they started to look around, and they could not find him, and they looked again, and they could not find him, and she started looking at her watch. It was not 30 seconds. It wasn't 60 seconds. It had been minutes now, and our little one was gone at Walmart at Danforth and Santa Fe. So she does what any, you know, good, smart mom does. She goes to the head manager and says, Code Adam, shut this place down. And they locked all the doors. The whole we sh- Our family shut down the Walmart. I'm just saying. You could not get in or out of that place. And, you know, she found Noah at the front of the store playing video games, having a great time. Just mesmerized by all the lights and things. And he was safe, having a good time. She has never been the same since. She's going to die 10 years earlier. I know this. It was horrible. I mean, And, and, and on the other end of the phone, I, I was dying on my end too. And, and if you have ever lost a child, even for two minutes, you know the pain of the father or the mother of a child. And that's the heart of God when you are far from him. Make no mistake about it, friends. God is crazy about you. He loves you. And so is it any wonder that God ran to his son? That the father in the story runs to his son? Now, yes, you would wonder if you were Jewish because Jewish men don't run. You would never do it. When I was in Syria, I saw some of that first century uh, culture around me, and I was taking photos, and I came across uh, this really interesting photo of a dad and a son. You see the long gown, and uh, he was one of the only older men in the camp that we were in. But friends, he wasn't running anywhere. He wasn't skipping. He wasn't even walking fast. In their culture, grown men don't run. And they don't have pants either. I mean, they're, they're wearing these big, long robes. The, the thought of a grown Jewish man running to his son was not in anybody's mind. He had thrown caution to the wind. It was his boy, and he was home, and it changed everything they were going to rejoice. So this is the way the story goes. The father wasn't listening. He was calling to the servants. Quick, bring a clean set of clothes. Dress him. Put the family ring on his finger. The family ring. He had saved it. He hadn't given up on him. And sandals on his feet. His own sandals that would fit him. Then get a grain-fed heifer. Now that's important because you only ate meat at the biggest celebration. So he's slaughtering the steer. You're going to have steak tonight, friends. And they're going to have a big old feast. Wonderful time. My son's here. He was given up for dead. He's now alive. Given up for lost. Now he's found. And they began to have a wonderful time. Now, that is where you'd love to end the story. That's a great place to end the story. Is that where Jesus ends the story? No. That's the setup. The sheep, the coin, the boy, you're set up. Now, this is the point Jesus wants to make to you tonight because you are not the prodigal. I don't care what you think. If you're in this church tonight, you're not the prodigal. Prodigals don't go to church on Friday nights. And you're not a sheep and you're not a coin. You are the angry brother. That's who we are. If you're reading this story, you get to be the angry brother. I'm sorry. It's just the way it is. All this time, the boy's watching these stories. The Pharisees are hearing these words. And all this time, the older son's out in the field. Ah, he's not at home either. He too is distant from the father. But it's about his work. He's just distant because of work, as if it makes a difference. Distance is distance. Foolishness or work, still distance. And as he approached the house, he heard the music and the dancing, Oh, he should be happy, right? His brother's home. Calling one of the houseboys, he asked, What's going on? And the houseboy told him, Your brother came home. Your father's ordered a feast, barbecued beef, because he's home safe and sound. Now, look what the older brother does. He stalked off in an angry sulk and refused to join in. Hmm. Now, look, see who God is. Look at the father. The father, again, goes out, right? Both boys are far from the boy. father has to go to the other son too. He goes out, comes out, he tries to talk to him, but he wouldn't listen. And the son said, look it, old man, listen. Now, you'll notice that the younger boy, when he had been foolish, when he uh, actually talks to his father, what's he say? What's the first word he says? Father, respect, honor, humility. What's the older boy say? Look it, listen, right? Not... Not in right relationship, not even close. How many years have I stayed serving you, never giving you a moment of grief, but you have ever thrown me a party for my friends? Oh, no. Then the son of yours. Oh, look at that. It's not about his brother. It's not about his relationship. Now he's pushing it off. He is not going to be made right with the family because he's done the right thing. So now he's separated from them. This son of yours who has thrown away all of your money, and we ellipsed it because it's not family friendly on what he threw his money away on. That boy shows up, your son, and you go out on a whole feast. I want you to see how good God is. God the Father says to him, what's his first word back to him? Son. Now that's better, because if my boy says look, I'm going to look. Right? If we're going to do that, then let's do it. That's not who God is. God calls him son. You are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. Don't ever forget that. Now, this is absolutely true. If you go back in the Old Testament to Deuteronomy, what you find is that the older boy gets two-thirds of the estate, and the younger boy gets a third. And the younger boy's already gotten his third. So the younger boy's going to get a bunch of nothing now that he's home. He's going to get a dinner, but that's it. Everything that the dad has now rests with the older boy. That's just the truth of the matter. And he's still not happy. It reminds me of the first story we heard. The law states that you have to give the oldest boy two-thirds. You have to. Doesn't matter whether you like him, don't like him, whether he's pitching a fit or whether he's being a good boy, he gets two-thirds. It's just the way it is. That's the law. And so his father reminds him of this. And then he says this, son, but we had to celebrate because this, watch what he does here, brother of yours, right? He puts it right back on him. It's not my son. It's this brother of yours. Wake up, son. This is important. This brother of yours was dead. He's come to life. He was lost and has been found. Celebrate with me. Celebrate with me. And Jesus is asking you tonight, will you celebrate with him of his goodness for all people? Yes, for you, of course for you, but not just for you, for the people that you cannot stand. For the people that you do not want to be a part of your church or your small group or your business or your neighborhood association. All those people that you have that come in mind that you never want to see again, you are supposed to join the party and celebrate God's goodness for them too. And Jesus is asking you, will you? Will you join the party? Will you celebrate with me? Will you? Will you? I hope you'll tweet this out with me. To celebrate with God, one must also share in God's mercy. Because God is a merciful God. And if God is merciful, we're to be merciful. Amen? Amen. Amen. Never forget God's mercy and grace. All this story leads to this question. Will you join the party? Will you join the party? That is the climax of the story. And it's an open question. You might be asking yourself, well, does he? Does the older brother ever join the party? Does he come to the house? Does he do it? And Jesus says, no, no, no. That's your question. Because you're the older brother. How will you answer the question? Will you celebrate mercy and join the party will you